Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. I hope your Thanksgiving was a relaxing one filled with delicious food and great company. On this week's episode of the Roundup, we're going to look back at some of the best segments from our past roundups. We cover the arts, looking at the ban placed on students from watching Anna in the Tropics and the legacy of Michael Tilson Thomas. And we look at Hurricane Irma's impact five years later and the role diplomacy plays in Haiti's humanitarian crisis. All that and more on today's edition of the South Florida Roundup. I'm Danny Rivero, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Cuban native Nilo Cruz came to Miami as a child and became a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright. He won the Pulitzer for Drama in 2003 for the play Anna in the Tropics, a play that takes place in a Tampa cigar rolling factory near the end of a historic wave of Cuban immigrants to Central Florida. That play has been shown to students at Miami-Dade schools for years now. But this year, the school district objected, saying the subject matter is inappropriate for high schoolers. And this happened in the midst of laws and guidance from the state dictating what can be taught. In September, I spoke with Michelle Hausman, artistic director of Miami New Drama, about this ban by the school district and its potential impact on the arts. Just to help the audience understand what this play, Anna in the Tropics, is about, can you just tell us a little bit about the plot of the play and what the audience sees on stage? The irony, Danny, is that this play is about the power of literature. It's about uh, a family uh, that works at a, at a tobacco rolling uh, factory. And it's the, the year 1929 in Ybor City, near Tampa. And what, the way that back then they would spend the time is that they would hire a lector to read to them while they're rolling the tobacco. And the lector decides to read Anna Karenina, Tolstoy's famous piece. And so the, you know, literature literally changes their life. They, you know, passion is brought out. They see the world in different perspective. And uh, and I think that, that that's a gist of the play. It's a power of literature. So the fact that the public school system is banning this play from students to see it is that they also understand the power of literature. And, you know, I read the other day uh, a quote that said that, um, you know, if you're afraid that plays or books will change the way people think, you're not afraid of literature. You're afraid of thinking. And I think that that, that is at the key of this issue is that the school system is saying that students are not capable we're talking about right high school students seniors and juniors are not capable of encountering a piece of literature a piece of art and knowing how to process it i find that offensive i find even more offensive than the the discussions that we were having a decade ago was that art funding was being stripped from public schools so you know Organizations like mine, like Miami New Drama, we have been able to fill in the void that the school system has left behind. We are the ones providing 
free access to students so that they can have encounter with art. Every time I, you know, we do one of these uh, student matinee performances that by the way, we even pay for their buses so they, they can come to school. I, with a microphone, I ask, how many of you students have never seen a professional play? More than half of them raise their hands. Their first encounter with culture is through us, through or through the culture nonprofits of Miami-Dade County. And, and let, let me right. let me let me ask you a, a jump in there. Um, you so, can see so, I'm, a, I'm a little <laughs> passionate about it. So I could of, go on. Of I'm course, so of course you are. Um, so so this play, Anna in the Tropics is taught in high school classrooms across the country. It's a big deal play. Yeah. You know, it's 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 a, 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 a golden production for yes. for South Florida writing, if I can say that. And and it's also been shown all around the world. Has this play ever been censored or not been allowed to be shown in another place before? I have before? to be honest, Danny, it has. So I'm going to share with you that it has been censored in Iran. In okay. Iran. Yes. It's a one country in the world where this play has been censured. Iran. Oh, and now Miami-Dade County Public School System. And yeah, right. And the, you know, your, your, your company, the Miami New Drama, is this the first time that your company experiences this with the Miami-Dade Public School System? Unfortunately not. It's a trend that has been, worrying trend has been happening in the past two years. It first happened with a play called The Cubans. We tried to work our way around it. We went to a meeting. It was an extremely condescending meeting uh, for, from the folks there. Um, then the last show we did, The Cuban Vote. Uh, I don't know if you saw it. It, it. It's a wonderful show based on Shakespeare, The Taming of the Shrew. It was, again, banned, and they absolutely gave no reasons. Um, we didn't want to go public with it because we were trying to find a solution. We didn't want the students to suffer. But this is, and we also have a lot of other programs we, we do with the school system. We, did, we were concerned of retaliation, uh, and but this was a bridge so far. Anna in the Tropic was, you know, 20 years ago, this is the 20th anniversary, 20 years ago when it was produced at the Cockroach Grove Playhouse, buses of students from Miami-Dade County Public School came to see the performance. And now 20 years later, suddenly it's, you know, it's, a, it's an issue, right? Uh, uh, you know what had what has happened to our society that that, that we became uh, uh, prudes and we, we became purists uh, puritans that people you know cannot cannot encounter and by the way this is there's nothing if you google age appropriateness of Anna in the tropic every theater that produced it including on broadway it says for kids over 12 years and up so what, what 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 are they so concerned about uh, about students of Miami-Dade County public school system they can't see the show the high school students is it because a playwright is gay I don't know because but, you know what but, they didn't, they didn't they, they have not given us us the company a reason why they have not you know they 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 they, they decided to ban this 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 show into students so I have here the the school district said that it's objected to nine scenes in the play citing wow. references to references to violence and sexual activity uh, Miami-Dade schools district sp spokesperson Jacqueline Calzadilla Diaz said in a statement to the Miami Herald quote if families want to go watch it on their own that's one thing but staff felt it should not be a school recommended trip and as you were mentioning, this was through the school district's cultural passport program, which offers yeah. students the opportunity to see local art productions for free. Right. 
in many in many cases by actually busing them to watch yeah, the shows. I mean, and we pay for the buses. What it's really upsetting from 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 that comment. And by the way, they might have said that to the Miami Herald. None of them had the decency to write to us the reason why they've decided to pass on it. But what I find so upsetting is that sure, you know what, I can say every, and, and, and I'm saying it to you in the radio, every child from Miami-Dade Public School can come and see the show for free. I'm going to do that. But, but here's the problem, there's a lot of barriers. If you can go to the theater on Miami Beach, that means you, have a, you, you, you either have a car or you have a parent who can drive you there and you have the money to park on Lincoln, on Lincoln Road and, and, and you have parents who have the time and, and the money to do that. So uh, you really are preventing, especially the, the kids who have less daily access to culture from seeing this world-class production. There is absolutely nothing wrong with the work of Nilo Cruz. This, you know, one of the first plays I worked and I directed was Grossing Decency, The Three Trials of Oscar Wilde, where they were judging by, by Moises Kaufman, the co-founder of Miami Drama. They were judging the work, seen by sentence by sentence, they were judging the work of Oscar Wilde, deeming it appropriate or inappropriate. It's unbelievable. Then, then in the year 2022, the Miami-Dade County Public School System is doing exactly the same thing with Nilo. They're taking were you know sentences out of context by the way nilo writes poetically you know the, the, this is a man who lives in the same realm as shakespeare and by the way has way less sex and way less violence than shakespeare by the way and suddenly you know i, I, I want i want to ask you because the the playwright nilo cruz he was the first latino ever to have won the pulitzer prize for drama yeah. for this play and in the tropics Exactly. And in 2017, former Superintendent Alberto Carvalho in, 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 inducted him into the Miami-Dade Public School Student yeah. Hall of Fame. I mean, yeah. what, what does Cruz say? You're in touch with him. He yes, unfortunately well, couldn't come he, on. Every, but what does he, say? he could not come here today. He's hurt. He's in mourning. He's in mourning because this is his community. He's a graduate of the Miami-Dade County Public School System. He was so looking forward to, you know, and he agreed to be there on every performance we were going to do with the public school students to talk to them, to inspire them. He himself was a student of Miami-Dade County Public Schools when he encountered Shakespeare for the first time because of the school system. And that made him into other playwright he's today the same thing with orange squire who's done four of our world premieres now he's a big hotshot tv writer because he was a miami-dade county public school and they took him to see a play it changed his life how many orange squires nilo cruz are we aborting by not allowing this the students encounter to world-class theater they don't even they don't have that in school because art funding has been completely scrapped and, and and we are filling in that void, and now they're not even letting us do that. And M Michelle, just your personal story. You left Venezuela when political repression really started to get bad under the late Venezuelan president, Hugo Chavez. And you've seen firsthand what it looks like when the arts come in the crossfire of politics. Can Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with that? It's absolutely deja vu for me here. Uh, eh, eh, what, what's happening now? We were our shows were tear gassed in Venezuela. We were we had boycotts, and I understand exactly the mindset of those bureaucrats at the public school system, where they don't want to upset the powers that be. 
So because they don't want to upset the powers that be, they have no problem taking away the rights of the students to come to our show and the rights uh, of us to share that work with the students. It's an extremely sad moment, and it's a moment that should outrage us all. We, we, we have to turn on the lights on their reasoning. They have to explain to the public why they, they're going to take away those privileges from the students. And it's got to be a reckoning for this, for this community. Are we going to allow the, the, the banning of books, the banning of art, the taking away of rights of, of diverse uh, uh, students? Of, you know, it's a it's, it's really frightening time. Michelle Hausman is the artistic director of Miami New Drama. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you you coming on. I, I hope next time, next time we can talk about you know better news about the productions we do. Focus on the arts and not focus on the action of the bureaucrats of the, of the public school system. Thank you so much for your space. Thank you so much for your words in the introduction, and I look forward for our next conversation. Thank you. And in the tropics, the band play, if I can say that, will be showing at the Colony Theater on Miami Beach um, on the January 12th through February 5th next year. And playwright Nilo Cruz will be directing the show himself. The beloved Little Havana Art House Cinema in Miami, the Tower Theater, has been operated by Miami-Dade College for the past 20 years. The city of Miami recently decided to terminate and not renew its lease with the college. The executive director of Tower Theater, Nicolás Calzada, said that the college had been trying to renegotiate an operating agreement for 20 months with the city before it expires in January of next year. The college was hoping to renew its lease for an additional five years. South Florida Roundup co-host Wilkin Brutus spoke to Nicolás Calzada, director of the Tower Theater, and Chris Molina, a Miami filmmaker programmer, about the city's decision. Now, Nicola, protests have already been organized, and Chris put together an online petition with nearly 7,000 signatures as of this morning. Did this notice from the city come as a surprise to you, Nicola? Was there any notice ahead of time? Well, uh, so my my focus is on uh, directing the theater and film festival. Uh, Those negotiations between the college and the city go on uh, at the highest levels of the college. Uh, What what I can say uh, is that publicly in in a statement released earlier this week and and privately for quite some time, the college has shown extraordinary flexibility in incorporating city ideas into our the already successful program that we've been running as a cinema for the last 20 years. For example, uh, Commissioner Carollo uh, in a press conference earlier this week mentioned, uh, you know, possibly turning Tower Theater into a a visitor center for, for tourists visiting Little Havana. The college has said, hey, you know, Monday to Friday, we don't have our first shows until the evening. We're, we're very happy to turn it over from nine to five so the city can, you know, welcome visitors from out of town. And, and you know, there's a way to incorporate these ideas while still continuing the incredibly beloved program that we've been running here for 20 years. You know, the, the Tower Theater has always, from its inception over 100 years ago, been, been cinema. It's Miami's most iconic cinema by far. And under, NBC, and under NBC's administration over the last 20 years, it's become one of the most beloved art house cinemas in the entire nation. I mean, USA Today named this one of the top 10 places to see a movie in all of America. So there is a way to continue this incredibly successful and incredibly beloved program that we've had going for 20 years, while also incorporating some of the great ideas that, that Commissioner Carollo and the city have, have 
you know, proposed for expanding the use of the building. Right. And, and Miami-Dade College has had a five-year lease on the property since 2016. Was Miami-Dade College planning on renewing its contract with the city? Again, those negotiations go on at the highest levels of the college. I, I certainly know the college would love to keep continuing operating this theater. Uh, we, we've just gotten such an outpouring of support from the community since these stories have broken. And they really, you know, reaffirm just how special what we've been doing here for 20 years has been and how much the community loves this theater uh, and, and just associates this theater with cinema. You know, I, I was thinking the other day, this, this would kind of be tantamount to, you know, the city of New York saying, hey, we're going to, we're going to take Yankee Stadium and we're going to, you know, convert it into a farmer's market or something. You know, the, the farmer's markets are great, but the city has plenty of them and it has plenty of places where it could build more. But there's only one home for the Yankees. Right. And and this is kind of the local equivalent of that. There is only one tower cinema and it's been that way for 100 years. It's, it's our most iconic cinema in the city. Uh, I think what we need to do is find a way to continue MDC's amazing stewardship of the cinema while also incorporating some of the cities. And, and the college on its part has shown tremendous willingness to do exactly that. And the local film community, you know, and I think Chris can speak to that, uh, has come out hugely in support of, of MDC continuing to administer the Tower Theater because we, we don't just, uh, you know, program films. We, we view as part of our mission to support local filmmakers and local artists. And so we have things like the Miami Film Lab where, you know, for free, we host, uh, you know, a mentorship program for up and coming filmmakers. We, we do the Oolite uh, short film screenings. Again, you know, free of charge. We, we want to give local filmmakers a platform to show their films. Uh, if you walk to the second floor of the mezzanine today, you will see that for several months now, we have an exhibit up of Daniel Moran's art. He's a local artist, a local Cuban-American artist. It is in our DNA to support local filmmakers and local artists. And that's why every aspect of this community has come out hugely in support of MDC's continuing administration of the Tower Theater because it's been a huge success and there's really no reason to change it, especially if the college is showing such willingness to incorporate uh, additional ideas. Right. And, and uh, let's segue to Chris. Uh, you, you talked about the artist community. Uh, let's get his perspective as well. Uh, Chris, what was your initial reaction and response to hearing the news about the Tower Theater? It was really surprising because um, I think so many of us in the filmmaking community can consider Tower to be a second home, um, consider it to be one of our first choices when it comes to putting on screening because it's such a historic place. Um, to to hear about the city even wanting to get rid of it was was pretty alarming. Yeah, and, and that petition you created has 6,881 signatures, nearly 7,000. What led you to create that online petition, and did you expect to see this type of response? No, I didn't expect it at all. I expected maybe 200, maybe 300, um, but 6,000, almost 7,000 is, is way more than I could have ever expected. Um, when I first saw the article, I think that was my first instinct was that, okay, this is, this is, you know, something that may happen. We need to come together as a community to make it not happen. Um, and so far, I think the community's come together uh, pretty, pretty loudly and pretty strongly. Still to come, looking at past conversations about the legacy of Hurricane Irma and diplomacy in the midst of Haiti's humanitarian crisis. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. September 9th marked the peak of hurricane season, 
and five years since Hurricane Irma made landfall. The eye made landfall in Kujo Key as a 130 mile per hour Category 4 storm. The center of Hurricane Irma then made landfall in Marco Island as a Category 3 with 115 mile per hour winds later that same day. According to estimates, Hurricane Irma ranks number seven on the all-time costliest hurricane list at $59.5 billion damage. This also makes it the second costliest in Florida state history, surpassing Hurricane Andrew and right behind Hurricane Ian just two months ago. South Florida Roundup co-host Wilkin Brutus spoke to WLRN's Keys reporter Gwen Filosa and WLRN's environmental editor Jenny Stiletovich about Hurricane Irma's legacy and their experience with the storm. Key West was relatively unscathed, but the rest of the Keys weren't so fortunate. Take us through some of the damage Irma caused in the Keys after landfall. Yes, uh, you're exactly right. Because the Keys is this 120-mile-long island chain, uh, even after hours after things were clear from the storm, you know, people were saying, oh, the Keys didn't get anything because Key West was fine. But uh, you have this landfall made in Kudjo Key. Um, these are the lower keys now, about 30 miles outside of Key West. You have significant dramatic damage. Um, the final count was about 4,000 homes uh, seriously affected or destroyed, about uh, 1,200 destroyed. And we have about 55,000 housing units here, but people were left homeless. Uh, it, it, was, it was devastating in the city of Marathon and Big Pine Key were hit the hardest. And Big Pine Key suffered some of the worst property damage from the storm, as you just mentioned. Uh, what was the damage like then, and how is the community faring now? Well, like in a lot of places in the Keys, you know, this is a tourism-dependent community in, in the Keys. A lot of people were already living in uh, trailers, mobile homes, um, some people in substandard housing. You know, uh, it's tough down here to to make the rent, and so you already had some of these difficulties and homes structures were just washed away and vegetation everywhere boats you'd, you'd drive around and there'd be someone's boat just thrown off the side of the road or you know dump stuff just dumped out it was um it, it left people really scarred yeah and there, there was a record a record 6.5 million floridians evacuated making it the largest evacuation in the state's history take us through the evacuation of the keys leading up to irma Yes, I can actually uh, give you a firsthand account. I was one of those people. I took my dog and my friend's dog and my friend and we hit the road and uh, it was a ghost town driving up. Uh, we, we we were okay until we get to the turnpike. It's an absolute disaster. I, I mean, nobody likes to evacuate, but there was a toll booth station that it looked like something out of a movie, like a horror movie, like people just leaving there everybody hundreds of cars trying to jam through like three lanes and um but there were people that waited to the absolute last minute in key west because it looks so bad and then it turns into you know a friend of mine who went through it called it escape room florida you go to tampa you go to orlando you go everywhere you go the storm looks like it's tracking you so it was um it was a long haul uh to get to safe ground and then to uh, figure out how to get back. I mean, if you drive around, even Big Pine Key, you'll, you'll think, oh, well, this looks great. It's just when you get in those neighborhoods where, where workers live and families, and there, there are still people struggling. And Jenny wants to join oh, the conversation here. Yeah, so Gwen, I, I, since you brought that up, uh, you know, years ago when I covered the hurricanes down there, it seemed like 
that the people who were left behind were the ones who couldn't afford to get out. I mean, it seemed like right. this terrible, dark irony. And I wondered if that's changed at all. Has there been any effort to provide more ways out for people who don't have cars or, you know, rely on public transportation or, you know, just to, especially after Irma? Um, no, that that's a great question, Jenny. It's it's um there there Monroe County, the, the county government does provide bus services. But here's the thing, you can get a ride out. Do you have money for food? Do you have money? I mean, I, you know, I have friends who are pretty well off who are like, wow, this is really cutting into my um, income, and my savings. And it's, can you afford, do you know anyone outside of the Keys? Do, do you have any place to, to stay um, other than your car or a, a shelter? So, it, you know, the ride is one thing and they do provide bus service, but it's, if you don't, you know, if you run out of time, luck, or, or you just don't have the money, a lot, a lot of times it's not a choice. Right. And where do you stay once you get out? <laughs> and have for how long? What if you're gone for, you know, we reopened October 1st, the Keys, but there were people very angry. They couldn't immediately come back and they just couldn't until, you know, 42 bridges on US-1 are inspected. Wow. 42 bridges. Ooh. Is the Corps of Engineers focus at all on the Keys? They, they've done some work down there. I mean, Glenn's probably noticed this. There's big boulders where they've they've sort of fortified yes. some of the some of the roads. They don't have a plan like they have in Miami Dade County because just the geography is different. I mean, the plan for the Keys is when there's a storm surge, get out. You know. Now, gas stations had lines stretching for miles. Has anyone been talking about the challenge challenges faced by electric vehicles, which are gaining so much popularity right now? Oh, I'd say if you have an electric vehicle, you better have a generator. <laughs> I mean, that will be an issue. I mean, the charging stations, I assume that where there are charging stations, and especially in critical hospitals, critical areas, that there are generators that provide uh power. I know that in California recently, when there were power surges because of the heat and the brownouts and stuff, they were telling people don't drive. They're asking them not to drive. Hmm. Is there anything the state or the region should focus on or should have learned from Irma and any other things people should always keep in mind with hurricane preparation? I guess that's a question for both of you. Well, the thing I learned is, um, you know, the most important thing you can have is an evacuation plan and, and really think it out so that you're not caught at the last minute calling people saying, can I come stay with you? I mean, you need to, if it's friends or family, um, just try and have an idea to go. And I'm not great at planning anything. It's not my, as far as, you know, I'm just like, I'll stay in the keys. I don't like to drive, but planning, saving some money, getting all that stuff ahead of time. I mean, you know, I do it too. You race to Publix at the last minute and then everyone's complaining that Publix is out of things. And then some of my friends are like, well, you've known about this for a year. But uh, it, it, preparation, planning, saving. Make, I've made many more friends outside of Florida, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but it is, it is in the thick of it. When it's there, you realize, like, man, a good plan would have really saved me a lot oh, of so many things. <laughs> Right. So many things could make it more comfortable. I, I do the food thing and then I'm just eating peanut butter, which I do anyway. anyway <laughs> planning and saving and, and, and having backup plans for in case, you know, just it, it's it's a lot. Haiti's political and economic climate has been spiraling for some time now. But now it seems to be at a breaking point. Insecurity, the fuel crisis 
and the rising cost of living led to large protests that would halt activity in major cities for hours. Cholera has returned to the country and has already killed more than a dozen people, in part because of a lack of clean water. Voices have been calling for foreign intervention, while others have been opposed to it. I spoke to Dan Foote, former U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti, about how diplomacy works and doesn't work in tense situations like this. He publicly resigned from the position last year. Dan, when you hear acting Prime Minister Ariel Henry call for a foreign armed forces to come into the country, and you see United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres backing that call so far, what does that say to you as a former diplomat? Business as usual. It tells me that the international community is going to go back to Haiti another time and try the exact same formula that has failed numerous times in the past, including several times in the last 40 years. And as you know, Einstein's definition of insanity is to try the same thing over and over and expect a different result. And Dan, you you were extremely critical of U.S. foreign policy towards Haiti, even though you were a part of it at some time, you know, before you resigned. I just I'm curious if there is an overriding mission of U.S. foreign policy towards Haiti that you can identify. What would you say that mission is? Stability in one word. It's always been stability. And that's not terrible goal to have, but without it attacking the drivers of instability, it's going to be very difficult for the Haitians to move forward. I mean, I want to ask you because you were a special envoy last year. You resigned just over a year ago. And, you know, if the U.S. foreign policy is stability, I mean, it doesn't seem like that's necessarily been working out the last couple (laughs) of years. (laughs) No, I mean, it hasn't worked. You can go back to 94, we had an intervention, U.S. troops, 04, we had an intervention, and it's just gotten exponentially worse each time. Stability is the goal, but it has failed because underlying U.S. foreign policy subconsciously is this unspoken or spoken only in hushed tones in the corners belief that these dumb black Haitian people can't govern themselves. And when you resigned rather publicly from your position last year, it was a couple months after the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moïse. What was it about the situation at the time that you could no longer support? I had been involved in the planning of the reconstruction after the 2010 earthquake, $5.1 billion in U.S. taxpayer money. So I sat in the room and I noticed that there were no Haitians there. And I questioned it at the time, but not vociferously enough. And I went back after the assassination and I saw that Haiti is, pick a number, at least 100 times worse than when I left in in 2012. So when I went and the Haitians asked me to listen to them, I decided we failed so many times, I need to listen to them. And when I saw that the U.S. government, my colleagues, were ignoring a civil society federation of groups and political opposition parties and and folks from across the country representing a lot of Haitians, 
in favor of Ariel Henry, who has turned out to be nothing but an ineffective dictator who has made no progress in the 14 months he's been in power. So take that, ignoring the voice of the Haitian people, backing a dictator, and then the terrible images of Del Rio, Texas, and the refugees, all of whom were deported pretty much. I just couldn't look myself in the mirror and, and be part of that anymore. And you just made reference to it, the the migration part of this equation, because as things get more unstable in any country, for that matter, but in, in Haiti in particular, because of its proximity to the U.S., we get more Haitian migration. And, you know, just so far in this fiscal year, the Coast Guard has interdicted more than 7,000 Haitian migrants coming by sea. And that's just the Coast Guard in the Caribbean. That doesn't count the almost 30,000 that have been deported back from the border crossings. And deportations are counterproductive because they reintroduce desperate people who have already spent all of their money trying to get to the United States through terrible conditions. They send them back to a failed state that can't come close to providing for the citizens it already has. Again, they have no money. The International Organization for Migration gives them $100, turns them out on the street, and they wind up in these terrible slums run by gangs. And it, we've already seen pretty significant number of recidivists, deportees from Del Rio who were sent back to Haiti, and they've been caught again in Texas trying to go back. So, you know, we're not going to stop most of these people. They're going to turn around and go back to the States. And you and I would do the same thing, given the deplorable conditions in Haiti and the fact that the United States government has sat with its hands in its pockets since I resigned. And what we said was going to happen a year ago is exactly where we are right now. And you you made mention at the, at the beginning of our conversation that if foreign forces, if, if U.S. forces go in, which we know the, the U.S. government is considering, that it would be you know, the definition of insanity, repeating the same thing and expecting different outcomes. With that said, I mean, the, the, the situation is obviously very critical. I mean, what option is there to bring some semblance of stability, if not a show of force of some kind? So here's the problem. And this is why I think it's more complex than it has been at other times. If we send an international force or U.S. force in right now, their mission would be to tamp down the gangs, dismantle, dislodge, and get rid of them. However, the Haitian people are out in force on the streets right now protesting their illegitimate de facto prime minister anointed by the international community, Ariel Henry. And I believe that there's an enormous risk of collateral damage and innocent civilians protesting just so people will hear their own voice because American and international soldiers have never been good at all at differentiating between good people and bad people in Haiti. Still to come, Michael Tilson Thomas stepped down from his role as artistic director of the New World Symphony. We take a look at a previous conversation highlighting his impact. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. 
A generation ago, Michael Tilson Thomas helped put Miami on the map for orchestral music, training the next generation of musicians. He co-founded the New World Symphony and has been the artistic director from the beginning. After 34 years filling the position, he picked up the baton as the orchestra's artistic director one last time before becoming artistic director laureate. Tom Hudson, the former host of the South Florida Roundup, spoke with Alicia Zuckerman, WLRN's former editorial director. And he also spoke with Jordan Levin, arts writer and former longtime Miami Herald arts critic, and Marcelina Suhotska about Thomas's legacy and Thomas's impact. It's uh, quite the achievement here, a full generation of uh, Miami artists uh, can certainly point to the New World Symphony and Michael Tilson Thomas and his leadership for their artistic development, not only here in South Florida, but worldwide. Marcelia uh, Suhotska is with us now, a, a percussion fellow at the New World Symphony. Uh, thanks for spending a little bit of time here on this Friday with us. Uh, why did you want to become a New World Symphony fellow? Hello, everybody. Um, my name is Marcelina, and it was a dream of mine to be a part of the New World Symphony for a very, very long time. I think I first heard about it when I was like in middle school or high school, and it just sounded like the place to be. Um, I heard that musicians that have gone through there um, would have enormous success um, in their careers, whether it was orchestra or beyond. And I just heard of, you know, so many percussionists in top orchestras that had gone through New World. And to me, it was like the dream to um, get into the program after college. And I was so lucky to do so. And it's been one of the greatest privileges to be a fellow here. What's the atmosphere been like uh, leading up to these uh, performances this weekend? Oh, as you can probably imagine, it's been an incredibly emotional time, especially for some of us departing fellows whose time is up uh, at the end of the season. And it's just so incredibly special um, for us to spend this time with Michael Tilson Thomas, one of the greatest minds of our generation. Um, every little you know comment he makes in rehearsal, whether it's to you or another section, um, is just so such a golden nugget filled with so much knowledge. Um, <laughs> Has that happened this week to you uh, in the percussion section? <laughs> Um, he actually had me demonstrate a rhythm for the rest of the orchestra that um, is used in the trauma march, the, the kind of um, funeral march. And the rhythm goes dun, 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 dun. And uh, MTT really wanted me to demonstrate it um, because as a, as a drummer, this is something that's really close to me and uh, just a really important it's a really important rhythm in the first movement, especially because it really sets the tone um, for the rest of the movement. So that was pretty fun <laughs> to get called out like that. Marcelina, you're talking about the Mahler Five. That's the the Mahler Fifth Symphony Number no. Five, which is being performed tonight and tomorrow. Correct. Yes. If you can, please come out. And tomorrow's performance is a wall cast, so you can enjoy a nice picnic outside. Uh, the, the second voice there, Alicia Zuckerman, our editorial director at WLRN. Uh, who, Alicia, you have spent uh, a fair amount of time over the years with MTT, interviewing him in a lot of different uh, uh, forms. Uh, share with us why this is the final weekend for him as artistic director. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it's been 34 years. It's it's a sad reason in, in a lot of ways. I mean, he announced in March, uh, he confirmed that he does have a form of brain cancer that is quite aggressive. It's He said in March that it was in check, um, but that the recurrence is the... Is, is not is the rule rather than the exception. And so he, he decided to make this call now to become the artistic director laureate um, and hopes to continue conducting some concerts, um, but really stepping back from a lot of the, the day-to-day work that he does and the sort of bigger picture work that he does with the orchestra. Although knowing him, he certainly will continue to have uh, a great influence on the orchestra. And, and that'll, I mean, that'll, that's, this is a huge part of his legacy, yeah. as well as the San Francisco Symphony, where he was artistic director for 25 years. Yeah, describe his style. I mean, as I said, you've, you've spent some time with him. You've interviewed him over the course of several years how would you describe his style as a as a conductor as yeah, a leader god i mean the first time i interviewed him was probably 16 17 years ago maybe yeah. something like that and then in new york and was lucky enough to end up here uh to really see his style up close with new world symphony and it's remarkable i mean he is such an open musician in terms of the way he thinks about music he loves music from so many different angles and so many different forms i mean in one interview he went deep into talking about the Beach Boys and <laughs> what a big influence the Beach Boys were on him in the 70s, you know, as a young musician uh, in the 60s. And you could even hear that in some of his original compositions. But watching him conduct and watching him rehearse with an orchestra, he has just this like, it's such a youthful energy. And, and you know, Jordan Levin is with us too. And we're going to hear from her in a second. But we were just talking about this like, his energy and Marcelina, I think you must feel that so, so up close, you know, what that energy feels like. Um, it, he just has this way of conveying that incredible passion for the music. And one of the most important things, and this is the case here in Miami, as well as with San Francisco, is he has he it's so important to him to make sure that audiences and musicians are experiencing contemporary classical music, modern classical music, music by so many different contemporary living composers Mm or 20th century composers. I have to say, including Steve Reich, who wrote the, who, whose piece is our theme music Mm -hmm. for this very show. Right, right, right. It's, it's, it's a full canon of, of uh, composers over centuries, right? Including certainly more contemporary works that some orchestras, some symphonies may feel a little bit less inclined for various reasons. Right, and one of those big reasons is economics. Right. It's hard to feel, it, <laughs> right. it is, right. and I can tell you firsthand from the concerts that I attend, I go to the Sounds of the Times concerts, which are the you know contemporary music concerts. It's harder to fill those seats, yeah. and it really takes moxie to stick to your guns and to say like, no, this is important. Like musicians need to experience this and audiences need to yeah. experience this. And we're going to do it, even if it's harder to fill seats. Jordan Levin is with us. Jordan, a arts writer, longtime uh, Miami Herald's arts critic. Jordan, thanks for creating some time on this Friday for us. How 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 would you describe uh, Michael Tilson Thomas's uh, legacy and what he has meant for the Miami arts environment? So Michael Tilson Thomas was an integral part of the birth, the explosion of culture in Miami in the 80s. So in the 80s, the city was coming out of a really terrible time, cocaine cowboy days, Mario Boatlift, Liberty City riots. And one of the solutions that 
leaders here saw was to get culture going, to get the arts going. There were almost no arts in Miami then. And almost every major arts institution in Miami was started in the 80s. Miami City Ballet, New World School of the Arts, uh, Young Arts, the Book Fair, the mm -hmm. Film Festival, and New World Symphony. So Ted and Lynn Arison, who were the first and biggest arts patrons in Miami, they started Young Arts, and then they got the idea to start a training orchestra. And the first leader of Young Arts had been the dean at the art school at the University of Southern California. And he said, well, I have this star graduate, Michael Tilson Thomas. At that point, he was already conducting major orchestras. But because MTT knew this new leader of Young Arts, he said, well, this is gonna be a serious place. This is gonna be a serious organization. This is something that I can get involved in. And what he brought with him besides his incredible talent was also he was a really adventurous, tuned to the new. He was always, from the time he was a teenager, he was leading, you know, premieres by Stravinsky and Stockhausen, and he loved John Cage. He loved everything experimental. And he brought that attitude with him. You know, if they had gotten somebody else, New World Symphony would have been a very, very different kind of organization. But that's such a good I, point. Yeah, that's such a good point, Jordan. And he just loved this stuff. He never apologized for it being difficult or avant-garde. He never used the word avant-garde. He used like beautiful, luscious, specific words like elegant and post-punk and... <laughs> And and he loved this stuff. He got excited about it. Yeah, Marceline, I'm wondering from your perspective as a as a fellow, how how have you encountered that new work? Not the not the usual canon that I imagine a orchestral fellow would be would be accustomed to. Yeah, I've done a lot of new music um, performances here uh, as a fellow, and also um, uh, on my own um, with my trio and. Um, it's something that's very integral to our experience here. Oftentimes it's tied into other regular concerts, but also we have separate concerts where we've collaborated with conductors like Matthias Pincher, who's uh, you know really skilled um, conductor, but also new music um, person. And it's really um, a great learning experience. I mean, I, I really don't like the word. I mean, the word new music, I feel like is uh, it's just like really reductive for obviously what we're trying to say and you know we often think like oh very very contemporary you know kind of stuffy music and that's totally not the case mm -hmm. um um new music you know spans a great great um a great deal of kind of genres as well and so i've gotten to play um new music but for example collaborate with a tabla player zakir hussein here last year mm -hmm. and he wrote a piece for the percussion ensemble so we got to um, learn a lot about traditional Indian classical styles. Um, and we've also done a lot of Reich concerts and things of this nature. And so it's, especially as a percussionist, that's usually our time to shine in new music, unfortunately. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, I just want to add, 
Jordan, you were talking about this remarkable mo cultural moment in the 80s. I do want to add that right in the middle of that was the founding of the Miami Heat. I feel like we have to say that. That was 1988. <laughs> that is true. That is true. It's the intersection of arts and culture right here. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Twe. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is a senior editor for news. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mayers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Danny Rivero. Thanks for calling. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.